Father, as we look in the scriptures this morning, I pray that your spirit is convicting and reproving, exhorting, encouraging, comforting, as each one of us has need. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you'd remember, uh, along, almost two years ago, way back in October of 2003, we started in John's Gospel. And uh, we're taking that back up this morning. John's Gospel will be in chapter 8. You know, we took the summer off. Uh, summer's a good time to take a short break from anything that's going on, have a short series. That was Solomon's Life in First Kings, which we finished last week. It's uh, difficult to jump right back into John 8, so let me just highlight a little bit of some of the things we've heard already. Uh, John 1.1, great introduction to a great book. We said it was theologically the first book of the New Testament, if not in order. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All great stories have a great first line, and John is no exception. Jesus was the Word, God's communication to man. Uh, We met John the Baptist, and you remember John identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. By the way, this church's name, two scriptures, one is John. Uh, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's where Lion and Lamb, half of its name, comes from. Uh, We met John's disciples, and then we met Jesus' early disciples. If you remember, we saw Jesus turn water into wine at a wedding, and we saw him heal a boy and an old man. We've seen miracles through our trip thus far. We met Nick at night, Nicodemus at night in John 3, if you remember. And that great phrase is out of John, John 3.16, arguably the most uh, well-known verse in the Bible, as well as uh, this command that, Nicodemus, you must be born again. If you're going to see the kingdom of heaven, which John 8 will tie in with this morning, you must be born again. That is, your point of origin is insufficient to get you where you want to go. Something's got to change in your life. Earlier in chapter 8, we met a woman... Uh, caught in adultery and learned valuable lessons there. We also heard Jesus talk about himself as the light of the world. And that brings us up this morning to John 8. We'll be in verses 21 through 30 this morning. Jesus' conversation with the Jews is continuing, and they're still trying to figure out who this guy is. Why is he saying these crazy things? Starting at verse 21. Then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. And pardon me as I interject all my little running commentary here as I go through these nine verses, but I hope they help clarify. When he says, I go away, he's talking about dying. He's talking about crucifixion, resurrection, and going back to heaven. And if you read John 7, you'll see that he's continuing a discussion that he's already had with these folks. He told them before, I'm going away and you won't be able to find me. In that time, they thought he was talking about leaving the country of Israel and going to another place. So when he says, I'm going away, he's talking about death. You'll die in your sins. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, surely he won't kill himself, will he, since he says, where I'm going, you can't come. And he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You're of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins... For unless you believe that I am, and many of your Bibles may insert the term he, but the Greek would just say that I am, ego amy. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So they were saying to him, who are you? Or 
Who in the world do you think you are to make these fantastic claims? Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. When he says, when you lift me up, when I'm lifted up, this is the crucifixion. These, these are common phrases and terms and thoughts in John's Gospel. When he's lifted up, he's talking about his crucifixion. And he says, I am. You'll believe that I am. I think in the study we did on Solomon, we talked about the term Yahweh. In the Old Testament, Yahweh meant I am that I am. That is, I am the God who was and is and will be. I'm the God who's outside of time. I'm eternal. I always was. I always will be. When Jesus says, you'll know that ego, Amy, you'll know that I am, he's identifying himself with Yahweh. He says, you'll know that I'm the one who always was. I'm the one who was, is, and will be after his crucifixion. He who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. You remember John's, the goal of John's gospel is to get people to believe. So in this case, many believe. That's the point. We're going to look at two issues in this text this morning. By the way, I don't know if you've noticed, John as an author, he's the simplest on one hand, and he's most profound. So that when you read his gospel or his epistles, they're like a junior's wading pool. You can stay really shallow, and they go right down to the diving pit, and they go really deep. And on any of these texts, there's many, many things we could talk about. Uh, I'm pulling out two, just two. The first is related to your future. If I said to you today, what's your future look like? You might think jobs, careers, geography, whatever, income. Jesus is talking about their future, his and his audiences. But he's, he's going beyond careers and earth. He's going to their eternal future. So as we look at this point, ask yourself the question, what's your future look like? Look at verses 21 and 24. Jesus says, I'm going to go away. That is, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise, and I'm going to go back to heaven. And you'll seek me, and you will die in your sins, and where I'm going, you cannot come. And verse 24 I said that you will die in your sins unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. In both these verses, Jesus says, essentially, about himself and about his audience, we're both going to die. We're, we both have a common a future point. We're both going to die, but we don't have a common destination. When you die, you're not going where I'm going. I'm going to die, and I'm going to go one place. I'm going back home. When you die, you're not going where I'm going. You can't come where I'm going. Why? Because you're going to die in your sins. Now, just think for a minute. Jesus is talking to the audience, and he says that he's God's representative on earth. So when he's talking about going back home, and he tells them, I'm not from the earth. Your point of origin is the earth but my point of origin is heaven itself. So I came from heaven, I'm here for a while, and then when I'm done, I'm going to go back home. And when I go back home, that's my future, that's my destination, but it's not yours. So he's telling his audience bluntly, you're not going to heaven. You're going to die in your sins under judgment, under God's judgment and wrath. I'm dying, I'm going to heaven. You're dying, and you're not going to heaven. 
you can imagine if someone, if, if we were in another setting, if we were in the setting of this audience in today's text, this guy's in your face telling you you're going to hell. You're going to a place of suffering under God's wrath and judgment. You're not going to heaven. And remember, you're a religious person. He's speaking to a religious group. He spoke, he's speaking to the chosen people. And he says he is Yahweh's representative on earth, and he's going back to see Yahweh, and they're not. Now, on one hand, this would be offensive, but on the other, it could be somewhat frightening. You, this is why they say, who do you think you are? You know, what do you mean telling us where we're going? Why are you going to heaven and we're not? Remember, as Jews, too, they're thinking uh, heaven, the Old Testament doesn't develop life after a lot. Uh, Psalm 16 talks about uh, pleasures forevermore at God's right hand. Isaiah 25 talks about a feast God would set at the end of time. Uh, Daniel, at the end of Daniel 12, uh, you're going to rise and you're going to enter and inherit your allotted portion. But there's no real graphic description in the Old Testament of what that would look like. What would heaven, what would their time after death, after their time on the earth, what would that look like? No real description. But whatever they knew, they knew a few things. They knew Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died and were somehow with God. They knew their ancestors and the patriarchs were somehow with God. They weren't sure what it looked like, but they knew who they were with. So now here's Jesus telling them, when you die, you're not going to see your fathers. You're not going to join Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the patriarchs because you're going to die in your sins and you can't go and see God. This is a big thing, this thing about dying in their sins. We... Um, we read over things that for Jesus' original audience would have, would have had more meaning, more content. Just think again, if you're in this audience, you're a Jew, this means you're more religious than anybody in this room is. And by that I mean your religion impacts everything you do. So you're a Jew raised under the law of Moses. And what does this mean? If you're a boy, you're circumcised the eighth day. If you're a woman, you go through your monthly impurities. You tithe. You go to the synagogue. You go to the temple at least three times a year. You offer the prescribed offerings for your sin. The high priest offers lambs twice a day, every day, for the nation's sins. The day of atonement, the priest lays his hand on animals to atone for sin. Everything you do, the food you eat, the clothes you wear, the way you rise, where you go, you name it. It's covered by the law. You're a highly religious person. You're jumping through the hoops. You're going to temple and to synagogue. You're a good Jewish boy or Jewish girl or Jewish parent or tradesman or whatever. And Jesus tells you, you're going to hell. You'd think, what do you mean? I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to. I'm jumping through the hoops. I should be okay. But Jesus says to them, unless you believe that I am... You're going to die in your sins and die under judgment. Now remember this, again, the thing with sin and death and judgment is a big deal to the Jews. The Jews know a few things about God. He's holy. He's holy. You remember what he told Moses, the lawgiver, when Moses comes before him? Take those shoes off. You're standing on holy ground. 
And then do you remember what the law did? The law erected a tabernacle, a tent, when they were in the wilderness, and it erected a temple, we read about this summer, in Israel, in Jerusalem. And on one hand, this was a good thing. It meant God was living with Israel. But what did it mean on the other? It meant they couldn't get to him. Why? Because he was holy. And because he says, you're sinful and I'm not. I'm holy and you can't get too close to me because your sins separate you from me. So the Jews knew, if I die with uncovered sin, I've got a problem. Remember, every time they go to the temple, they're bringing an offering. And the blood of that animal is spilled. That animal's throat is cut and the blood pours out. You guys remember we think of the temple as this glorious place. It wasn't some place as a butcher shop. It would have smelled of blood and death and fire and burning flesh. This is what the temple area would have looked like and smelled like. There was death all around. Why? Because those animals died, their sin, their blood was spilled, their body was burned to cover the Jewish person's sin. So they understood, it, I've got a sin issue, I know I sin. So I go to the temple, I offer the animal, the animal dies in my place, the blood is sprinkled on the altar, and I'm okay with God. So for the Jews, when Jesus says you'll die in your sins, he's saying your sins won't be covered. They won't be atoned for. You'll die separated from God forever. Unless you believe I am he. Unless you believe I am he. Jesus' Jewish audience believed, and this, this was a false notion. They believed that the law and the offerings and their religious observances would take care of their sin, that it covered, that it was adequate. Their efforts and those animals would cover their sin, but that was never the case. That was never the case. Um, we'll talk about Father Abraham later, but if you remember back to Abraham's story in Genesis 12 and 15, Father Abraham wasn't saved and his children weren't saved because they did something. They were saved because they believed. That's what the text says. They believe. Jesus comes to a Jewish audience that doesn't acknowledge who he is. He is the burning bush that spoke to Moses. He is the captain of the army of the host that spoke to Joshua. And when he presents himself to Israel as the Messiah, they say, we don't think you're it. He is the lawgiver. They're keeping the law he gave but rejecting him. So he says to them, you're going to die in your sins unless you believe that I am. Later on in the New Testament, when the New Testament is being written, the book of Hebrews is written to Jewish believers. And in Hebrews 10, the writer says this, the law was a shadow of good things to come, and it could never perfect those who drew near. That is, the law and its offerings could never perfect or completely or adequately cover the sins of those people who came and brought the animal sacrifices. <laughs> Hebrews 10 says those never covered sin. They never did. They were a picture of someone who would come and whose blood, whose death would be adequate to cover their sin. But the animals never were. He says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The Jewish audience that 
is listening to Jesus, they're thinking that that law will take care of it, and Jesus says it won't, it never would, it never did. When God forgave people in the Old Testament, I've used this as an analogy before, it was a credit card payment because God could not genuinely otherwise forgive their sin because there was no atonement. Remember Genesis, if you sin, you will die. But God promised a Messiah, someone who would come and redeem man. But these animals were just pictures. They could never perfect those who drew near. The blood of bulls and goats couldn't do it. It had to be the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. The Jewish audience understands a few things about God that sin's an issue. If I die in my sins, I'm in big trouble because God's holy. And if my sins aren't covered by an adequate covering sacrifice, I'm in trouble. I can't get next to a holy God if my sins are still an issue. Uh, Today in our culture, if you talk about uh, sin and judgment and hell, you're generally consigned to narrow-minded, bigot, religious right status. That is, we live in a culture which, to more or less degree, denies that there's a sin issue. I'm okay and you're okay, and if God's cool, then I'm okay with him. This has nothing to do with a biblical worldview. It's a fairy tale. It's fairy land. It's la-la thinking. It has nothing to do with reality. And you'll never find in the Bible the portrait. On one hand, our culture might say, look, if there's a God, he's a good guy. That means he's like me. And if he's like me, then this means that I'm going to live my life, and as I live my life, I make good choices and bad choices. And when I die, I'll stand before the guy, and he brings out the scales, and he weighs, you know, my good and my bad, and he says, gosh, you're a good guy like me, and you can come in. Your good's more than your bad. This is, has absolutely nothing to do with, with the Bible. The Bible says that when you're born into this world, you are born a rebel in rebellion against God. Born of rebel parents. Born of rebel parents. Born of rebel grandparents back to Adam and Eve. That is, we're born into the world, into the kingdom of darkness. We're born into a kingdom at odds with God, opposed to God's will. So that, Jesus already made this clear in John 3. In fact, John 3.36 says this, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him abides it remains it's not that he takes it out and puts it on you it's that it's over you it's on you the sentence of death is already over this world and over everyone in it so when jesus says to his jewish audience unless you believe it's not that they are going along and they might go one way or the other it's that they're on the wrong path going the wrong direction if they don't make a change they're going to die in their sins and therefore be judged by God instead of saved. They've got to change their course. Or the wrath of God remains and abides on them. Um, You know, it's hard to convince a person to leave their house if they don't believe it's on fire. And if a person doesn't believe that the hurricane floods really are coming, you know what? They don't leave, do they? But Jesus says essentially this, the fire's coming and the flood's rising. And if you stay right where you're at, you're in trouble. 
you're going to burn or you're going to be flooded or drowned or whatever, but you've got a problem staying right where you are. If you don't change where you're going, you're going the wrong way or you're staying in the wrong place. You've got to change the course of your future or your future, Jesus says, is not with God and it's not in heaven. The second point I want to make is, notice where Jesus' mind is. Jesus' focus in this conversation, and and it defines his life on earth, his focus is so much on his Father that when he describes his future, he says he's going back home to be with his Father. And when he talks about his time on earth, he says he is speaking his Father's words and carrying out his father's wishes. Uh, Joe's prayer and the song we started with were the same thought. Uh, Speaking those things God spoke, the truth, and doing the things that pleased his father. That's what Jesus says his life on earth was all about. He identified his future as with the father. He identified his present as speaking the father's words and fulfilling the father's wishes or will. He saw his time on earth as temporary, which it was. He didn't start on earth, was in heaven, came to earth, temporary position, going back to heaven. So as he's on earth, his focus is, I'm reminding myself who sent me, what his will is, speaking his words, fulfilling his wishes, until I go back to join him. I mean, to take an aside to give an example of this, Benjamin Franklin was a colorful character in the early American life, colonial era America. And, you know, if you think of Ben Franklin, I suppose many thoughts might come to mind. You know, he was a scientist. Uh, Electricity was one of his fortes. He was really a Renaissance man in colonial America. He was a bit of a genius, did all kinds of things, studies. Uh, Poor Richard's almanac. He was a printer. He was a writer. One of the things, though, that he is not given adequate Uh, credit for is uh, his role as a diplomat for the colonies. Uh, Ben Franklin was our ambassador to both Great Britain before the war and to France afterwards. In fact, he spent almost two decades outside the United States. He spent in Great Britain up to the Stamp Act. Ben Franklin was representing the colonies' interest to the king in Great Britain as our ambassador. And then once war began, he became our ambassador to France. And it was Franklin who was getting us French help on the seas, French money to keep our economy afloat. It was Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson was there as well, but Ben Franklin was there carrying our cause with the French. He was our diplomat, our ambassador. And it was Ben Franklin, who's perhaps the crowning achievement perhaps of his life, was helping to negotiate and then be one of the two signers for America of the Treaty of Paris in 1783. This was the end of our War of Independence. It was Franklin who carried the day in that for us. Washington was our military hero. Franklin was our diplomatic hero. And if Washington was, so to speak, the father of the revolution, Franklin was the son. And he was dispatched as our ambassador to France to serve our interests. So when Ben's in France, he's there as an ambassador under the fathers, under the Congress's aegis or authority, 
speaking the words he was given to speak, fulfilling the wishes of the early Congress on behalf of those who sent him. Just like Jesus on earth. Franklin's an ambassador. He's carrying someone else's flag, someone else's cause, someone else's concerns. He's speaking someone else's words. He's doing their acts as it suits them. When people are displaced, for instance, as the hurricane has so many people in the South, you know, typically, sometimes this is funny to me, uh, depending on what the situation looks like, but they're displaced from their home. Here's my home, let's say down in New Orleans, and the flood displaces me. And what do I think about when I relocate someplace else? I think about how can I get back home? I think, how can I get back and rebuild? In other words, for many of the people who are displaced, they have a built-in compass, and it's how do I get back to where I came from? So what they say and what they do is affected by their their cause, their internal compass, which is I'm going to get back home. I'm going to get back home. They're acting on behalf of their cause to go back home. Franklin acted on behalf of those who sent him from his home. And by the way, after the Treaty of Paris, he did leave France, went back to the States, to the colonies, and sort of lived happily ever after until his death. You can see his grave in Philadelphia today. Jesus has this built-in compass. And like a carrier pigeon, he says, I know where my home is. I know where my heart lies. It's with my dad in heaven, but I'm here for a while and everything I do is affected by my built-in compass that I'm always facing my home and my father. And so when I speak, I'm representing my father's words. And when I act, I'm representing my father's will. You know, Christians are called Christians. Uh, It means you're little Christs, you're little Jesuses, your followers of Jesus the Messiah. That's what Christian means. You're his followers. And God says about us as followers of Christ, he says that what he's after is to conform us to the image of his son. He wants us to become like his son, the Lord Jesus. That's what he's up to in our life. And that means to some degree that just like Jesus, just like Joe's prayer at the beginning, we should be people who speak God's word, and do the things that please our Father. Those should be characteristics of our life. We speak the truth, we speak the words of our Father, and we do the things that please Him. Let me ask you this. A a brief, quick, mental inventory. If you could take the words of your life, put them in a bag, like Santa Claus at Christmas, and you'd pour them out, and you'd look them over, or someone else would look them over, What would someone assume about your internal compass based on the words of your life? What would you think? If someone put them out, measured them in the scale, ground them up, got to their essence, what would your words reflect? Would they reflect truth? Would they reflect the Father's words? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, do your words reflect that? Does anyone know you're a Christian? If they don't, it's because probably to some degree you don't speak words of truth. So take the the words of your life, pour them out. What do you see? What do they say about your compass? What do they say about who you belong to and whose interests you represent? 
Or do the same thing, just think for a minute about your actions. And by this I mean the bent of your life. Where do you spend yourself, your time, your energy, and your money? If we put those things in that same bag and we pour them out on the table and we look them over and we weigh them, and what do we see? Are your actions those things that God the Father says, those are the things that please me? Those are the things that please me. Would the world around you look at that pile, the sum of your life, your actions, and say, I know they're a follower of Jesus? Or would, they, or would there be some confusion? Or maybe nothing, you know. What, what would it say? If we take our words, measure them up, what do we see? Or if we take our actions, measure them out, what do we see? Jesus said that all his words were from the Father, words of truth. And he said all his actions were based on the Father's will. Um, this passage uh, we're in this morning, I, had, I was glad to leave last spring when I started the summer series. I got to this passage and frankly it just befuddled me. I wasn't sure how I was going to teach it. And the truth was when I picked it up again this month, I just thought the same thing again. And this is a little different for me. When I read a text, I need to get what is for me the essence, kind of the germ. And, and as soon as I get that, I'm good to go. For long or longer than you'd care to hear me. But I've got to get the germ. I've got to get the little nugget. And I could not get my hands around this text. And in part, it was because it is another passage that deals with judgment. It says unequivocally, some people are going to heaven with Jesus and with his Father, and some are not. And the truth is, I not only don't like the subject, uh, sometimes I, I get tired of talking about it. But the truth is, if you teach through a text, you have to teach what God says, his words of truth. I found comfort in this. Um, this is another passage in which Jesus says point blank, and by the way, if somebody tells you that you're narrow because you say or you infer that some people are not going to heaven, you just need to point them to Jesus' words. You and I have no banner to carry that's ours. If you speak God's words of truth, you, you don't have to apologize. You don't even have to defend them or explain them. You can just say, what do you do with this? These are not my words, and they're not mine here. They're God's words. Jesus the one who died for the sins of the world, he's the one that said some aren't going to his home. If anyone has a right to speak about it, he does. He's God, he's the judge and the jury on one hand, and he's the savior of the world on the other. If anyone wants to talk about it, he certainly has the prerogative to do so. These are his words. Having said that, I still am uncomfortable uh, thinking about anyone's future separated from Christ. It's, uh, it's something you wouldn't wish on anyone. I did find comfort in this, though. I find it interesting that John 8 is, to me, arranged in a little bit of a point and a counterpoint here. If you remember the story about the woman in the beginning of the chapter, just, you know, here's this woman in bed, maybe in a darkened house. It's daytime because people are out doing their thing, probably the morning. But anyway, her dark, private, sinful world is just exposed in the blink of an eye. 
as these men, what clearly was a plan, break into the house she's in, rip her out of bed, probably trying to grab her clothes as she's pulled out, and from the dark secrecy of her sin, she's pulled out into the light of day, and not just to the light of day and public humiliation, but she's brought before a Jewish rabbi at the temple. This is as bad as it gets. She stands before the judge of heaven and earth at his house, and what does she get? Judgment? No. She gets mercy. She gets grace, and she gets forgiveness. He does tell her at the end, go and sin no more. The one who's going to die to cover her sins tells her, I forgive you. Now go and sin no more. That's the point. The counterpoint is this. When Jesus is speaking to this audience, his words are granite, and they're steel, and they're judgment. And the point is this. Our destinies are not determined by what we do or don't do per se. They're not determined by religious activity. They're not determined by hosts of things, but they are determined by this. What do I do with Christ? When I choose to believe in Christ, to entrust my soul to Him, I'm moving from death to life. And I'm moving past the judge to my Savior. But the truth is, all of humanity will face Jesus Christ in one of two functions. He'll be your judge, or he'll be your savior. He'll be one or the other. Jesus may be, you may choose to find him in this sense, the kindest friend, the most tender healer, the sweetest savior, and the most able shepherd. That's the role you can find him in, if you choose, as the woman in John 8 did. Or... You can refuse Christ, you can refuse his free offer of salvation based on his payment for sin and find him the most thorough examiner, the most unyielding sovereign, and the most impartial judge. But we will face him in one role or another. So I'm comforted in this passage because I'm reminded there is a message of judgment And it's odd that in the gospel that's written to get people to believe and be saved, you see so much of judgment. But it's because there's a warning. And in our culture, many times, I'm sure you'll find this is true, you can talk about Christ to others and about being saved, and can't you just see the question mark on the person's face, what do I need to be saved from? I don't need a Savior if I don't need to be saved. And I don't need to get out of the house if it's not on fire, or if the flood's not coming, I'm okay. And part of communicating the gospel, which means good news, is communicating passages like this out of John 8, which are the bad news. And the bad news is, if our course isn't changed, we'll die in our sins under God's judgment. It's not if, it's a given. Our course can change, and it's changed simply by accepting Christ. In Jesus' words here in John, by believing in Him. No work on our part, because nothing we could do could atone for our own sins. All on Jesus. But we meet Him as a Savior, or we meet Him as our judge. And He says in John 5, the Father has given all judgment to the Son. But He also says, 
The Father didn't send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved. God's desire is salvation. And he says in Ezekiel, he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. No pleasure. It, it's, it doesn't uh, crank him up. It doesn't excite him. It's not something he finds joy in, the death of the wicked. Or Isaiah. Isaiah says about judgment and God, he says, judgment is God's strange or unusual work. That is, it is not what is most characteristic of him. But he is good at it. And he will do it. Because he has to. Because it's consistent with his nature as a holy God who cannot look on sin. Let me close by saying this. If you haven't entrusted yourself to Jesus Christ, you need to. You need to. You don't need to think about it another day or wait until next week. You need to be careful because you never know how many days or weeks you've got. I was a firefighter for 16 years, and I can tell you I saw many, many people who were dead when I saw them. And they didn't know that that day that I met them was going to be their last. They had no idea. Fires, wrecks, medical emergencies, you name it. They didn't have tomorrow. They didn't have the luxury of twiddling their thumbs at the end of their life thinking, well, should I or shouldn't I? They just died. And they either stayed on the course they were born on, or if they'd already made the choice, if they'd already accepted and trusted and believed, they went to heaven with Jesus and the Father. If you haven't trusted Christ, trust him, accept him, believe in him. If you have, and knowing that you're called to become like your Savior, then make this your aim. Point your compass in this direction. Father, I want to speak your words of truth, the hard and the easy, the forgiveness and the judgment. And I want to do those things that please you. Lord, I want to point my compass towards heaven where I know I'm going. And I want my words to please you. And I want my works to please you. And if you do that, I guarantee you, when you see him, you'll be ready. Let's pray. Lord, I'm struck again by the absolute necessity of believing in your Son, receiving forgiveness through your Son is, Lord, it's the most unhappy thought I can entertain that any of us would reject your Son and would experience eternity apart from your presence and the joy and the pleasure that you have planned for us. Lord, help us, like you, to take no joy, no delight in the death of those who don't know you. Lord, instead, I pray that by our words and our actions, we would be little lights in this world. Lord, that you would use us to speak your words and perform your will so that both you are pleased and glorified and so that people around us, Christians and non-Christians, are benefited. Father, I pray that you'd help us do away with any fears that would keep us from being your man or your woman, your person on this earth. I pray that you give us a reckless, holy abandon to your will. 
Father, I pray that the people that we rub shoulders with would know Jesus Christ through the testimony we bear in word and in deed. And Lord, uh, we will always fail. We will always need our Savior. But I pray that our lives would be characterized by those things that please you, our words and our deeds. In Jesus' name, amen.